we just ask for your blessings today. We ask that your word would be spoken clearly, and uh, we thank you for everything you've given to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. How are we? Good. Happy March. The calendar says that spring starts in March, so that's what I'm hoping. Yeah, yeah. Good. Hey, uh, my name's R.D. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And uh, yesterday at Door Creek, we had a great, great gathering called the Kingdom Justice Summit uh, Conference. We maybe saw some announcements about it. It was on the website. And we had nearly 250 people who were here from over, I think, 22 churches in the city uh, talking about justice and the gospel and reconciliation, and it was just awesome. I mean, churches kind of all over the map, you know, if you will, but gathered together here at Door Creek talking about these things. And Dr. Alex G. was here from our sister church on the south side. We had Parker Palmer here, who's a thinker and a writer uh, about issues uh, about justice and, and grace and, and these things, and they gave some keynotes. And we just had a ton of diverse uh, people here, and it was awesome. And uh, to John Anderson and the team, uh, I said a thanks last night uh, for the video, but it was just an awesome conference. We're hoping to do it again in 2016. Uh, so just this is a very, very advanced warning on that uh, conference coming up as well. Uh, if you have a Bible, grab it. We'll be in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back. We can get you one, or you can find the Bible on your phone by just typing in Bible and then looking up Luke 10. So there are no excuses. There are no excuses. Um, it's amazing how the text that we have today connects actually with a lot of what happened at the summit uh, yesterday because in God's providence and laying out the entire gospel of Luke, 24 chapters, we come to a parable uh, which may, many of you probably have not heard of. It's kind of a forgotten parable. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay, has anyone heard this? Okay, everyone's heard this parable. Okay, it's like the most famous parable of all the parables in the entire Bible outside of maybe the prodigal son, both of which are in Luke. And so what we want to do just for kind of quickly, obviously this morning, is take a deep dive into the parable of the Good Samaritan, because I think a lot of us kind of know what it means, and that we're not necessarily wrong in that, and I don't have any new revelation for us that the Holy Spirit gave me this week that's going to totally blow your mind about I never even knew the parable was about this. Like, I was trying really hard to come up with something just, and I was like, this is just what it is, and for 2,000 years it's been taught kind of this way, and so we're going to do it. But maybe many of you haven't actually looked at the parable in a long time. We kind of know it's about helping people and being nice to people, people who are different from us. And this is what Jesus is about, well and good. Let us move on to Luke chapter 11. And so what I want us to do is maybe just pause and take a deep dive into the Good Samaritan and see um, maybe what God's heart for us in the 21st century is in this parable and how at Door Creek, how in our own lives, we can be people who model and live out what we see in this passage as people who follow Jesus, right? Uh, the call of the Jericho Road is very much for us today. And that's the call we come to in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, does this question sound familiar? Any of you remember last time that I taught? Uh, this is the test. Okay. Uh, we talked about the rich young ruler. And his, he had the same question. And like I said that time, this is not a common question that you and I probably ask each other. No one's ever asked me this question, Pastor R.D., what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Like, that just sounds weird, right, in our modern-day English. But in, in kind of the first century, it, it wasn't that weird. And people would ask, how can I inherit eternal life? What do I have to do? How can I be a part of the age to come? How can I be a part of the kingdom? And they would ask rabbis, they would ask teachers this question. And so a lawyer stands up, and this is not a lawyer who's been to law school or taken the bar. This is a lawyer who's an expert in the law. Like the law, like the Bible law, okay, the Old Testament. And he's an expert in that. So he's basically a Bible teacher. He's a Bible theologian. And he's asking a very common question to Jesus, right, the rabbi. uh, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he asked him to test him. So it's not a completely innocent question. No one's questions with Jesus are always that innocent. They have an angle. They want to learn something. They want to trip him up. And so Jesus is always, like a good rabbi, he answers a question with a question. To make you think. And so he says this. He says, verse 26, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? So he's taking the lawyer to the law. It's good. Right? He, he is saying, oh, if you want to learn what this is about, we're going to go to the Bible. Uh, the Old Testament is the basis to kind of find out what you must do to inherit eternal life. And so it's always helpful to take people to the Bible when questions arise out of the Bible and not just kind of make up what we think the Bible says or what we heard one time from a pastor. But what does the Bible actually say? So Jesus is like, how do you read it? How do you interpret the scriptures? And so the Bible teacher comes back and he says this. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this, and you will live. The Bible teacher, our Bible theologian man, he has answered right, this is great, he has the right answer, and he's actually put two Old Testament commands together. One comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, it'll be on the screen. This is where, what he's quoting from. Verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. This is called the Shema, and Jewish men would repeat this this verse uh, twice a day, in the morning and in the evening, uh, as a reminder that the Lord your God is one. Yahweh is one, the God who created everything, who made everything, right? He is the ultimate authority over all things, and we are to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to love him with everything. And so this is, everyone knows that verse, the people of Israel. And so he's doing well so far. The second verse that he throws together is from Leviticus Chapter 19, verse 18, it comes from the the holiness code of the book of Leviticus. This is the verse, verse 18. It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so he puts these verses together, and verse 28, Jesus says, yes, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, the passage doesn't end there, otherwise this sermon would be very short and we could then go home and be like, awesome, he answered well. You guys should answer that way. Let's pray. Let's leave. But as always, the Bible goes much deeper and Jesus goes much deeper. And the man who comes to Jesus has a little different agenda than just wanting to get the answers right. So Jesus says, do this and you will live. These are the right things. Love the Lord your God with everything in you and love your neighbor as yourself. And the Bible teacher is like, that sounds like a lot. So let's like bring that down to human level because I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can make that happen to get eternal life. So let me ask a qualifying question that may allow me some wiggle room. So I can get to the new heavens and new earth so I can make sure I'm a part of the whole business that's going to be in the future. Verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. Never good. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Which is a polite way of saying, who is not my neighbor? Right. Who is not my neighbor? It's a nice way of saying that. 
And Jesus begins to tell a story, as always, which is going to illustrate a very powerful, powerful point. See, the, the point here is that the, the man who's asking, how can I inherit eternal life? What do I have to do? And then he asks, who is my neighbor? He's saying, I, I need to find some way that I can do this in my own power. So I'm hoping Jesus is going to come back to me and say, just love your family. Just love the people of Israel, because I can do that, right? I, I love my uncle Tony, I love him. He's the best. I love my grandma, Ruth. Okay, I love them. My family, I love. I am awesome with them. Other people, I don't really care about that much. But I don't think Jesus cares about them either. So he just cares about my nuclear family and the people of Israel, the people like me. And I can't wait for him to say that. And then I'm going to be like, look at my resume of loving people. It's like three or four people deep, right? It's my family, and I love them so much, right? And so that's like what he's hoping is going to happen because he's asking a question that's going to draw boundaries, about who's in and who's, who's out. And Jesus is like, okay, how can I help you understand this? So he tells a story, which is helpful for me and for us, right? And this is what he tells. In the audience, the Jewish audience, all around him listening, he says this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Okay, so there's the parable that he tells in a Jewish audience. So it's important to remember the context. He's talking to a Jewish audience. The people would assume that the man lying half in the road is a Jewish man. And the road that leads from Jerusalem to Jericho is very desolate. It looks like parts of the American Southwest. There's no trees. There's no rivers. Okay, I've been there. I've seen it. You can actually drive up to parts of it and look out and see the road kind of going down through the mountains. It's very sketchy. Okay, this is a shady road. It goes 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it drops 3,000 feet in 17 miles. And robbers and thieves and, and, and just bad dudes would hide there and try and take things from people who'd be leaving the temple and going back to their home. And so no one should travel this road alone, but this man is. But no one, no one usually would. They'd be in caravan. They'd be with lots of people. But oftentimes, and actually for centuries even after this, this was just a, a shady road where bad things happened. And so everyone hearing this knows, well, that's a bad place. What was this dude doing alone? That was not smart. He is an idiot, right? That's what they're thinking. And so then Jesus begins to unpack this parable to them. And so the first guy that comes by is the priest, and he's probably just come from service in the temple. Right? He's done his religious duty. Okay, He's offered sacrifices on behalf of the people of Israel. And he's leaving, and he sees a man lying in the road. And remember, this man, I mean, you can imagine it. If you can't imagine it, he's, he's lying in the road. It's not a large road. It's kind of a narrow road. He's lying in the road. He's naked because he's been stripped of his clothes, and he's bleeding probably and very bruised. Right? He's been assaulted physically. Everything's been taken from him, and he's lying half dead in the road. He may even look dead in the road. Right? Just th so it's, it's kind of actually shocking, just the image of it. It's not just a guy kind of hanging out on the side of the road asking for money, as awful as that is. This man is lying half dead. He's lying down in the road. He's been beaten so badly. And the priest, just coming from his religious duty, where you would think he would be in a place where, like, when you leave church, you're feeling pretty fired up, like, I want to go help somebody. You'd think when he's leaving the temple, like, this would be a great moment for him to feel the love of God for his neighbor. But 
He doesn't, right? And he goes on the other side of the road, maybe afraid that if he touches him or gets near him, he will become polluted himself. Right? And so his religious obedience prevents him from acting in love towards his neighbor. Even though, in the law, if someone was dying or in serious trouble, you could help them no matter their condition. But self-preservation has gotten in the way of helping someone who's dying. Right? And before we're too hard on the priests, you and I can be just like that as well. Right? It's always easy to beat up on the Bible, people. Well, we're, we're so much more enlightened. We would never do that to anyone. Right? Yet our hearts are not far different from his heart. And so he just said, I, I just can't, I just, I'm going to keep going. He sees him, but he doesn't see him. He passes by. So character number two, the Levite. Levite is like a JV priest, okay? This is a priest who's never going to become a priest, basically. He's a guy kind of in the background, you know, like he's just never going to come to the big leagues. That's just not who he is. And he knows that. He's cool with that, okay? Uh, if, the, if the priest kind of has a little bit more money, maybe a little bit more influence, the Levite's kind of lowered down on the social status um, ladder there, and he doesn't have any type of like a, a donkey or a horse or anything. He doesn't have any money, and he also is coming from the temple probably. And he sees um, the man lying in the road, and, and he may think religiously, "I just can't touch him. This is just I don't know what to do." And he also may think, "What what what can I even do? I don't have a horse to transport him. Uh, I don't have money to do anything for him. I just I have barely enough to feed my own family. I don't know what to do." With this man, how do I even take care of him? And so what may prevent him from helping the man is just he feels helpless. Like many of us can feel when we look at the problems of the world. And we don't, where do we even begin? I don't, oh, I see him. I know I feel bad for him. I just, I got to keep going because I'm not sure what to do. And he just keeps going by. And at this point, everyone listening to Jesus is always probably right on the edge of their seat or on the edge of the ground, the dirt that they're listening to him on. Um, are waiting for the third person to come around. And Jesus is actually telling a story using kind of a common theme um, in the first century where uh, rabbis would tell a story with three characters. And the first two would usually be priests, religious leaders, and the third character, the hero of the story, would be like a Jewish um, farmer, like the everyman, right? And that's kind of how the story went. It's like a joke we tell where three people walk into a bar, right? And you have the three characters, and the third one's usually the punchline on the joke. And so this is the same type of thing. Okay, And they're waiting for the third man to come. They're like, all right, you're sticking it to the religious establishment, Jesus. Yes, right, that's the evil 1%. We don't like them. Let's get the everyman in here. Okay, we are ready for the everyman. We love you, Jesus. Right? He's going to help his own kind. That's what's going to happen. The Jewish farmer is going to come. And he's going to save the day. Right? And this story is going to live on in infamy forever. Okay, You've got, I mean, who knows, hundreds of people, right? They're around Jesus. They're waiting. <sighs> Jesus. <laughs> He did not get the memo on <laughs> trying to make everyone happy. <laughs> Verse 33, but a Samaritan, what? As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. In this moment, when Jesus drops a Samaritan bomb, people would have gone irate. I mean, they would have gone, they would have gone irate. They would have been like ripping clothes, going crazy. They wouldn't have been like, oh, Samaritan, how kind, Jesus. You are so inclusive, right? They would not have done that. There would have been outrage and yelling. A Samaritan is like the sworn enemy of the Jewish people. Like the sworn enemy up there with the Roman occupiers in terms of hate. Right? They were actually called half-breeds because they came from maybe a Jewish parent and then a, a parent from Samaria. Right? And they had been crossbreed together for centuries earlier, and they were looked down racially from the Jewish people, and they were just seen as lesser than, like lesser than even human beings. The Jewish people hated the people from Samaria, hated them. Remember the woman at the well in John chapter 4? She is a Samaritan woman, right? 
And so Jesus uses the Samaritan, and it's like just this crazy example. And let, let me just be honest, the Samaritans are not completely innocent. They would sometimes throw blood and things into the Jewish temple. Okay, so they're not just innocent, right? They're being picked on, right? They're hated, but they throw it back in the face of the Jewish people too. And so you have this violence between them, and Jesus is making the hero of this story a sworn enemy of the people of Israel, a sworn enemy of everyone who's listening. It's like, okay, to do modern-day examples. Now, this is not an equal comparison, but I'm trying to get kind of the shock value here, okay? So everyone just, if you're about to get offended, so be it, okay? Um, send me an email Monday. I'll look forward to reading it. Here we go. So it's like if Jesus went to go talk to a group of white, uh, white supremacists, okay, which Jesus might do because they exist now, actually. Um, and he went to go talk to them, and he was telling the story. And he tells the story, and the first two people that come by should be sympathetic to the white supremacists lying in the road. But they aren't, right, whoever those people might be. And the third person that comes around, the hero of the story, imagine, he's telling this to a group of people, right, who are racist. And the third person that comes by to heal and help the Man lying in the road is actually a young black woman. Right? That's who comes by. That's who heals and helps the white supremacists lying in the road. That's who Jesus uses. Can you imagine? How, how, would, the, how would the men and women react at that moment? Right? They'd be outraged. They'd be angered. Like, this is impossible. It is impossible. We can't even imagine how this is possible. This is our enemy. Right? Tension. Or we'll flip it on the other side. Imagine you have Jesus is talking to a gathering of, of, uh, of people who um, are, say, the Human Rights Watch, which is the largest organization, civil rights organization for gay and lesbian people in the world. Okay? He's talking to a gathering of them about the Good Samaritan. And he tells a story, and he tells a story of, a, of a, maybe a, a man who is gay lying in the road who's been beaten. Okay? And the person who first person comes by should help him, right? but doesn't. The second person who comes by should help him and doesn't. And the third person who comes by let's say, is a um, family values, super conservative, right, GOP congressman from South Carolina. <laughs> okay? Right, that's who comes by. And that's who Jesus says is the hero of the story. Can you imagine? Impossible. Right? Why would you just make us angry like that, Jesus? This man has been hating us, right? He wants to sponsor legislation, right? Right? The point is not that Jesus is saying that the Samaritan in of himself is a perfect person, but that the Samaritan is a human being worthy of love and respect and honor. It does not mean, right, that you agree with everything that everyone believes, but it does mean that you treat everyone with respect because everyone's made in the image of God. And so the Jewish people are just, they're just like, Jesus, you don't even know. And so they're outraged. And so he tells this story, and then at the end of it, I love this response. Verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. <laughs> right, he can't even say the name of the Samaritan. Can't even say Samaritan. Can't even say the S word. He can't even say it. The one who had mercy on him, Jesus. <laughs> right? Can't even say his name. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. <laughs> It's such a shocking parable, and it's hard for us to even get our minds in it because we just don't quite, I mean, I use the examples, we don't quite have that relationship even in our country now. But it's like the Israelis and the Palestinians, right? This just anger towards each other, and Jesus is just subverting it in so many ways. And at the end of it, he says, go and do likewise. And that's, I think, where we start to wonder, what does it mean to go and do likewise in the 21st century? How can we be people who apply this parable to our times here and now? And unfortunately, how we apply it is by creating, like, two different groups 
groups of people, right? Two different kinds of churches. And I've been a part of both kinds of churches. And so we have churches on the one side who are Bible churches, as we say in the South, Bible churches. Okay, they love doctrine. They love the Bible. They love theology. Okay, you've got to get a master's degree when you're going to finish just a Sunday at that church. And they are passionate about that. They're going to teach you the Bible and the Greek and the Hebrew. And it's awesome. And trust me, I love that type of church. I grew up in a church like that. And it was super helpful. But, you know, but helping people in social justice is like, yeah, that's like a liberal thing. We don't really want to do that. We're about the Bible, right? We want to help your knowledge just grow, and you can just do that, right? And so we have churches like that, a lot of churches like that. And then on the other side, in reaction to that, especially in the 20th century, we have churches uh, that are kind of like justice churches, and they're social action churches, and they, 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 they don't so much care about doctrine or the Bible, but they care about making the world a better place, Right? And, and many of those churches populate our city, right? They're passionate about doing good works, but they kind of leave Jesus and repentance and gospel conversion and personal conversion kind of behind because that's not tolerant, right? And if you look at the landscape, and you could see that they're basically these type of churches and, and never shall the two meet, which is so sad. And what Jesus says is, is actually two things that we've taken apart should never have been taken apart. They should actually flow together beautifully, that gospel proclamation should be matched with gospel demonstration. That proclaiming the good news of salvation by faith alone, turning and repenting of your sin, should actually make us people who pursue justice and mercy. And so for some reason, though, in our culture, we've, we've put the two on the other side and say they're conservative churches that care about your heart and spiritual things, and they're liberal churches that care about making the world a better place. And that's just so sad because we want to have churches that do both of these things together, right? But it's hard because then you get flack from both sides. Why don't we preach the Bible more? Why don't we care about the poor more? And at Door Creek, we want to actually try and move in that tension. Right? We want to do both. We, we want to actually do word ministry through the proclamation of the gospel and then deed ministry and sending people out to care for the needs of the city and say both come from the Bible. Right? The Bible doesn't seem to have a qualm with it. James chapter 2, the whole book of James talks about this. This is on the screen. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. I love how it's called the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Okay, there we go. The book of James, right, from the Bible is saying we put these things together, right? You cannot say that your faith is genuine if you do not at least have a heart disposition towards the least, towards the poor, towards those who suffer. You've got to connect them together. Okay, you, they, have, they go together. And I love what he says. I've always just thought this is interesting. Like if you're passing by someone and they're clearly starving or clearly need food, and you say, brother, I'm going to pray for you that, that someone can give you food. James is like, Go get them food, right? Go get them bread, you know? And sometimes what we want to do is, is just say, well, we want to give you the bread of life. And I always want to say, yes, give everyone the bread of life. That's the ultimate thing we need. But maybe also give them bread that they can eat. Well, why do we not have to do both of these things, right? Both should flow together. James says your faith is not genuine if it does not show up in how you live. Now, doing good deeds and doing good works does not save you right? 
a lot of people in our culture now do good works, do good deeds, passionate about justice and mercy, and we say yes and amen to that. But that does not save you, right? That is the good works are the fruit of your salvation, not the root of it. The root is the gospel, right? Transformation of your heart. The fruit shows up in justice and mercy towards people different from you, people you normally maybe raise your blood pressure, people you never see as neighbors, right? This is the point. The motivation for mercy is receiving mercy. That's the motivation for it in the gospel. That's why the gospel is the only thing that can sustain justice because we've been humbled by the good news of Jesus, and so we now look at everyone in a humble way, not we are better, we are the heroes, we're come to help you and save you. It's like outside of God's grace, we would be just as broken and just as lost as you. In fact, at one point we were, and now we want to give you bread and give you the bread of life. James says, your faith is dead if it is not accompanied by action. But we have to have faith that comes from God. Remember the, um, the teacher asked, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, you don't do anything. It's a gift. Faith is a gift of God. It's a grace of God. And grace is what powers justice. There's another verse from Amos 5.24. I love it. I love the image of it too. But let justice roll on like a river. Let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. You know, rivers have to have a source. This, everyone's probably like, duh, RD, we know. Thank you for the uh, biology, not biology. Ecology, it doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for the scientific lesson. So and I was looking up rivers this week because you never know where just a fun sermon fact you may be found. And so I, did, I just wait too much research on the Nile River and where it came and then the Mississippi River. But every river, right, has a source. And often the source actually comes from rainwater that comes down mountains and then uh, fills um, lakes and, and streams and things. And if um, the people I was reading said, if it quits raining, right, or if the lakes are no longer filled, then rivers stop flowing. And I love what, what this verse says. It says, but let justice roll on like a river. But what's the source of justice? Right, it's the gospel. The gospel of grace is the source that powers the river of justice. Right, that, that's what it is. The gospel of grace is the source. And if that dries up, justice dries up, right? When a river flows through the land, it helps everything in the ecosystem, right? Everything comes to life if the river is flowing smoothly. Everything is growing and having life and being resurrected. And when the river quits flowing, everything begins to die around it. Amos, the prophet, is saying, this, let's remember the source is Jesus. And he gives the power to the stream, Right? And as rainwater falls from um, the sky onto the mountains and, and provides life for the river, we don't make the rain happen, right? And by God's grace, grace will always be falling from God our Father, powering us to be people of justice in the world, right? But as Christians, let's just be clear what comes first. The gospel of grace gives the power for justice. It gives us eyes to see the world in a way we haven't seen it before. But both go together. Well, the Samaritan modeled this so well. Tim Keller writes this in his book, Generous Justice, How God's Grace Makes Us Just. It's on the screen. We instinctively tend to limit for whom we exert ourselves. We do it for people like us and for people whom we like. Jesus will have none of that. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, and religion, is your neighbor. Not everyone is your brother or sister in faith, but everyone is your neighbor, and you must love your neighbor. You must love your neighbor. 
And it's so hard to do, right? The parable of Good Samaritan can just be annoying. It can just get in our way, right? It just can because you think, oh, Jesus said this. Oh, I got to do this. And God wants to move our hearts from being we have to do this or we have to feel guilt-tripped into helping people to just having a desire to do it, a want to do it. Well, how does that happen? Well, let's look at um, just kind of five characteristics I picked out from the parable. I know there are more. But uh, five characteristics of being a good neighbor, a gospel neighbor. They'll be on the screen too. I know there are more. This is not an exhaustive list. We don't have time to get into everything a good neighbor is. Okay. And, but I want to just hit five here. And the English is not that great because I wanted to kind of be a little cute with the language so you remember it. Pastor jokes, pastor stuff. So uh, hopefully you remember it. So number one, from the parable of the Good Samaritan, what are some characteristics that you and I can model as well? Number one, get new eyes. Okay, get new eyes. So in verse 33, it says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. Okay, the first two men see him but don't see him, right? They, they, they visually see him, but their eyes are not opened to his need or to what's gone wrong with him. And so the first thing that you and I, to be gospel neighbors, to be good neighbors to people, is that we need gospel eyes. We need new eyes to not just see the world, but to see the world as it is and all of its beauty and all of its brokenness. And so he sees the man, and he says he's moved with pity. He's moved with compassion to actually help him. And so his eyes see something different than the religious leader's eyes. And so for you and I, we need to be people who have eyes that see and are moved with compassion towards people, towards the world. When we see things going on in the world, we see things going on in our city, we're actually moved by that. And our hearts break a little because of that. It's not easy. But we have to be people who are broken with the brokenness of the world. We have to get new eyes that only comes from the gospel of grace. Jesus Christ gives you eyes to see the world in a totally different way. Okay, number two, get near. He came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him. Ah, there we go. He didn't just see him. Seeing is a good first step. But he went to him. He got near to him. He got on the ground next to him. He, he was in proximity to him. And in proximity, we can actually begin to create some intimacy by being close to people. Yes, you can love people from afar. You can love people all around the world. And we should do that through prayer, through financially giving, but also through being near to people in our city who are suffering, who are broken, actually getting close to them, like rubbing shoulders with them. Not just staying away, saying, oh, isn't that awful what happened? I'm going to then keep walking on my way, right? Compassion and, and having pity is not enough. We have to get near proximity to the poor, to who we used to be, right? Poor in so many ways. God came near to us. Number three, get dirty. Get dirty. So um, the road is not paved, right? It's rocks. It's dirt. Um, the man is bleeding, no doubt, probably profusely. He's got um, all stuff probably on him as people have walked by and kind of trampled on him. And the, this man actually uh, <laughs> gets dirty, he gets bandages on him, right? He actually has to pick him up and put him on the donkey. I mean, how, can you imagine what that, how awkward that was? Put a man on a donkey, right? Just unbelievable. But he got dirty. He wasn't afraid just to get near him and kind of just stand like a foot away and like stare at him, right? He actually got dirty. He got some of the junk of the man in the road on him. Because I think the Samaritan just thought that, well, the whole world is, a is my own neighborhood. And so I want to be a good neighbor to anyone, and I want to, like, if you are suffering, then I'm suffering, and I want to take on your pain, right, because it's not right what happened to you, and so he takes on his pain, he actually gets dirty, so get new eyes, get near, get dirty, number four, get resources, right, the man has bandages, he has bandages, um, he has oil and wine, he takes him to a, an inn, 
So he provides medical care. He provides housing for the man. Right? He financially sacrifices for the man. I, I didn't know this. I was reading it this week, but I, I read in the commentary that um, when the Good Samaritan pays for uh, the man's uh, room, uh, he saves the man from becoming a slave to the innkeeper. Right? Because if he's saying he, he pays for about two weeks. And so if the man stays there for a week or two and doesn't have, can't pay, which he wouldn't be able to pay because everything was taken from him, then when he wakes up and feels good enough, the innkeeper would say, well, now you have to work for two, three weeks, to pay, or if not longer, to pay off your debt to me. And so the man not only provides medical care, gives him housing, he pays his debt so the man doesn't have to be a slave when he gets better. Now, there's so many things where we can go with this in terms of providing housing, right, and medical care and psychological care. But I just want us to say it is not sufficient just for you and I to have one-on-one care with people, right? There are other people who are experts in things, right? There, there are people that deal with housing issues, right? There are doctors and nurses and hospitals that can provide help to people. We, we need an army of people who are mobilized to, to help people where they are. Just one of us can't do it. And I know there are different, we, different things with aid, and, and aid, is aid good? What kind of aid do we give? They don't have time in this message to get into all of that. What I want to say is the Good Samaritan model is more than just let me pray for you, right? I'll see you later. He provided resources for this man in need, and he found ways, right, to actually help him where he had need the most. Okay, last one. Get off your donkey. Okay, I... I almost had a different title for this, but I thought, <laughs> I, I don't think they're ready. I don't think they're ready. So I look forward to that email as well. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you in advance. Get off your donkey. So the man actually gets off his donkey um, and helps him, right? And, and so it's kind of, I know this sounds like a pastor cheesy, just kind of really, but like what is the donkey kind of, you know, that, that may prevent you that you're on? Right? He, he is on a comfortable donkey on his way, could easily pass by. Right? For the Samaritan too, his enemy is the Jew. Right? He doesn't have to do this. He has every right to say, you hate my people. You hate my people. I'm going I'm to actually have this donkey actually run over you. Right? He had every right to do that. And the Jewish people would probably think, he's going to do that. That's what's going to happen. And he gets off his donkey, his comfort. He dies to himself in a way. And he puts the man on the donkey. And so I don't know, we all have things, guys, that just prevent us from loving the other. Right? We all have, we have assumptions, we have things, and here's the thing, right? We often say, well, I, we should help people, right, who, 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 who help themselves, right? Someone breaks the law, they did that to themselves. We don't need to help them. You know what? This man knew that he shouldn't have gone on the road by himself. He was there by his own sin and by his own effort, right? And the Samaritan didn't say, well, you should have known. This is what you get. Right, forget all that. Not that that's not true, but he just looks at him as a human being and he gets off his donkey and he actually bandages his wounds and he helps him. Do not let religion, do not let indifference, do not let helplessness prevent you from helping the least, the suffering, and those who are different from you, those who even anger you. Jesus will have none of it. He will not tolerate it in the kingdom of God. He won't. What are you willing to sacrifice so that others can be free? Right. Alex G. said this yesterday at the King of Justice Summit. I just wrote it down. It was so good. He said, are you willing to lose your comfort and freedom for someone else's liberation? Are you willing to get off your donkey? Right. When I grew up in the church, I, I just didn't grow up in a background that cared about justice, really. I mean, it's not that people growing up in conservative churches don't love their neighbor. They do. 
Right? I'm not saying that you hate your neighbor because you're not waving the justice flag. Okay, let's have grace on both sides. Right? We all need to get better eyes. But I just didn't grow up in a church like that. I grew up in a pretty conservative church. It was me and Jesus in my relationship, growing in doctrine. And I got to college, and I was at a Bible church, Bible church. And uh, I was at a liberal arts, you know, school that was not a Christian school. And we, I was taking a class in issues in U.S. history. And we started talking about the slave trade, right? And our professor one day said, hey, I want you guys to go home before class two days from now. I want you to write a paper, like a one-page paper on does slavery still exist in the world? And I remember thinking, Oh, dear, this, we got liberal propaganda here. This is, there's no such thing as slavery. Uh, there's no such thing as slavery in the world. Like, this is like 150 years ago. Why do we, okay, I was like, calm down. And this is just my thinking, right? Because I didn't, I just didn't know. I didn't have the eyes. And I went to, I just remember, I, I will not forget this. Not that it was that long ago. But I went to the school library, and I typed in slavery in the world. And I was just ready to be like, okay, how am I going to write a paper on, like, nothing? I don't even know. Because they're not slaves in the world today, right? We abolished the slave trade. And I remember pulling up, like, the first few things, and I came across a Christian organization called International Justice Mission that works with eradicating slavery in the world. And I found out that there are actually more slaves today than there ever were, right? There are 27 million people who are enslaved today, sexually through work, especially in human trafficking, these type of things, people held against their will. It's, it's, it's the number one money-making thing in the world right now. Just eclipse drugs, because unlike drugs, you can keep reselling people. I remember just sitting in the library thinking, how, how do people not know about this? I never heard about this in church once. Just, I, I remember thinking at one point, I was like, does God know about this? Like, <laughs> does, does God know what's going on in this world? I just remember being like, I remember sitting and looking at the screen just being so brokenhearted. And also mad at myself for not knowing what was going on in the world. I never met, so I still haven't met someone who's actually been trafficked, but I know what actually happens in our own city. Right? And I remember going back to the class, and that, that was just a moment that changed my life. And I remember actually thinking, looking at the Bible for the first time and seeing all these verses about justice and the poor and the widows and those who were slaves. And I had eyes to see for the first time what I'd never seen in my whole life. That justice is not a liberal thing, right? It's not a conservative thing. It's a biblical thing. Because God is a God of justice who cares about everyone. And he is one day going to put the entire world right. And now he gives us the ability to do that even now in our time. And it just changed my life. And so now in my, in my Christianity, I'm putting together the gospel of God's salvation. Personal salvation, personal conversion is so powerful. And now I've coupled it with what God wants to do in the world and seeing the world with new eyes. That there is brokenness and pain. And that actually the church should be at the forefront of the mission of justice in the world. Not in the background. Criticizing how everyone else does it. And it changed my life. And I hope it didn't make me liberal or it didn't make me conservative. It just made me actually fuller and richer and deeper. Because I put things together because God finally gave me eyes to see. And it changed my life. And this is how I see the world. It's how I see the world now. Right? See, Jesus Christ is the motivation for all things. He's the ultimate good Samaritan. Right? He's the one who sees you and I lying in the road. And he doesn't walk by, though we got there by our own effort, by our own sin. He doesn't say, you did this on your own, so forget it. Right? He's the one who sees us, and he brings bandages, and he pours oil and wine on us, and he picks us up, and he puts us on his donkey, and he takes us to an end, and he pays our debt. So you and I don't have to be slaves anymore, and we get to go free.
right? That's the motivation for being good Samaritans. Not out of the goodness of our hearts, but because of the goodness of God's grace. Right? That's the motivation for loving people and for looking at the world with eyes that finally see. We'll close with a painting of the Good Samaritan by Vincent van Gogh. And you can see the Samaritan putting the um, Jewish man on the donkey. And how, how awkward does that look, right? Actually, to see someone putting a, a man on the donkey, right? This looks very difficult, actually. To actually raise a man from the ground who's probably heavy and put him on a donkey, it looks very difficult. It looks just very awkward, right? It looks very hard. Well, it also looks like love. It looks like love. That's what it looks like, right? That's the gospel in action. That's the power for you and I to be people of justice and mercy and grace. Jesus says, who's lying on the road in your city? Who is actually your neighbor, right? The question is not who is my neighbor. The question is who can I be a neighbor to? Jesus doesn't say who is your neighbor. He says who turned out to be the neighbor. Maybe the person you least expected to be. So let's get off our donkeys, right? And let's go and do likewise. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for leaving through your son the comfort of heaven and coming to serve and to save us. Father, I pray we would be a church that does word and deed ministry together and says yes to both, that we want to be for our city for everyone in our city, proclaiming the good news and demonstrating the good news of grace. God, thank you for giving me eyes to see. I pray you'd keep opening my eyes to the world as it is. Father, would we be people who look at the world and say, Father, you've sent us to serve it and to love it. Father, would we be people of justice. We look forward to the world that is to come when it will be full of justice and truth and grace. We ask these things in your name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to take communion this weekend together. And uh, how we take communion at Door Creek Church is if God saved you and rescued you, you're um, a follower of Christ. And we ask you to take communion and you can just grab the cups or two cups together.